This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Last week, I read Galway Kinnell's Last Gods, and I compared that poem's rich interlocking layers of eroticism, naturalism, spirituality, and vulgarity to a fine glass of wine. And if you're anything like me, the comparison of poetry to wine feels very natural. Not all of us are fortunate enough to have a teacher like Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society to invite us into the beating heart of poetry. Now, for those of you who don't know, a yelp is a loud cry or yell. Now, Todd, I would like you to give us a demonstration of a barbaric yelp. <laughs> come on, you can't yelp sitting down. Let's go. Come on, up. Gotta get in yelping stance. <laughs> Uh, a yawp. No, not just a yawp. A barbaric yawp. Yawp. Come on, louder. Yawp. Oh, that's a mouse. Come on, louder. Yawp. Oh, good God, boy, yell like that. There it is. You see, you have a barbarian in you after all. Now, you don't get away that easy. Most teachers, obsessed with making sure we get Shakespeare, Byron, and Coleridge, tend to approach the subject with a sort of aloofness and romantic drama. That's not necessarily a bad thing and not necessarily a false portrayal of poetry, especially classic works and older forms of English. However, too much of that, and poetry becomes an art form that ends up sitting high up on the shelf, out of reach. And the same can be said for wine appreciation. We've all met wine enthusiasts who speak about their vintages with a sense of snootiness, using obscure and esoteric terms not to inform, but to establish a sense of elitism and superiority. And poetry today can be like that too, even though, as Longfellow's popularity showed us, it wasn't always. But what if poetry didn't have to be like wine? What if, instead, poetry could be like a shot of whiskey? I'm talking barrel oak when it hits your tongue and the kick of spice. Then it goes down with a burning in the throat, a warmth in the chest, and a... (coughs) That's the good stuff. What if poetry could be like that, too? As it turns out, it can. And this week, I'll be reading a poem that serves as a whiskey counterpoint to Galway Kennel's wine. If you had to name a writer most likely to strike that robust chord deep inside the chest, most reading men would likely blurt out the same set of names. We all know who they are, and it wouldn't take a man long to land on the right one, the incomparable Charles Bukowski. For a long time I knew his name, but I didn't know much about him other than that, except of course for his grizzled, world-weary face and his hard-edged, gritty style, which we'll get into. What I didn't know is that he was born in Germany, just after World War I, to a German mother and American soldier father. His father intended to stay in Germany, but this is how the flows of history work. Due to the crippling post-war sanctions on the German economy that led to the rise of a certain regime I don't need to name, Bukowski's family was forced to move. So when young Charles was two years old, 
his parents packed him and themselves up and sailed on a ship to the United States, finally landing in Los Angeles, where his paternal grandfather had moved decades earlier. As a child, Bukowski was beaten by his often unemployed father, bullied by other boys for his German accent, and rejected by girls because of his acne. Then, when he was 13 years old in 1933, he was invited into the wine cellar at a friend's house and served his first drink of alcohol. It was magic, Bukowski would later write. Why hadn't someone told me? That began a lifelong love affair that wove its way indelibly into his work, but not before taking a toll. In 1939, Bukowski moved to New York City to try and make a living as a writer. All he accumulated were rejection slips. By 1946, he had given up that pursuit and began, as the Poetry Foundation website describes it, a, quote, 10-year binge across the country. In 1954, he was back in Los Angeles on the cusp of death in an L.A. County hospital after suffering a bleeding ulcer. After that, it seems, he began to take his craft more seriously, publishing his work in underground magazines and local papers, but he never quite gave up his hard-living ways. This was during the 1950s, the beat poet era that foreshadowed the, depending on your perspective, socio-cultural breakdown or awakening of the 1960s. So in underground America, artists and poets were experimenting with some of Bukowski's favorite themes, drinking, sex, gambling, and music. For reference, Jack Kerouac's famous novel On the Road was published in 1957. You might not be surprised to learn that writing poetry about drinking and sex didn't pay so well in 1950s America, so Bukowski was forced to take a job. Believe it or not, he worked for the U.S. Postal Service, first as a letter carrier and then as a letter filing clerk. Try to imagine that next time you're frustrated in line at the post office. The man behind the counter may be a famous poet yet. Through the 1960s, Bukowski continued writing, being published sporadically in literary magazines, including one called The Outsider. Then in 1967, he landed a column for an underground newspaper in Los Angeles called Open City. The name of the column was Notes of a Dirty Old Man. The column eventually found its way into the Los Angeles Free Press, where in 1969 he came to the attention of a man named John Martin, who ran a publishing company called Black Sparrow. Martin made the 49-year-old Bukowski an offer he couldn't refuse, the opportunity to write full-time. Bukowski explained in a letter to a friend, quote, I have one of two choices, stay in the post office and go crazy, or stay out here and play at writer and starve. I have decided to starve. One month after leaving the job, he had finished his first novel, Post Office, which was published with Black Sparrow, as were almost all of his subsequent major works. Bukowski's Wikipedia page, of course, is full of his adventures through various women, relationships, divorces, and flings. He definitely talked the talk and walked the walk. That hard-living lifestyle drew scorn from later critics who have come to view history through novel political lenses. In 1986, two years after his death, Time magazine called him, quote, the laureate of American lowlife. And I don't think that's entirely a compliment. But thankfully, we don't all decide what we like based on what critics say. And Bukowski left behind a legacy of work for us to decide for ourselves. And many have. He's been referenced by bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fall Out Boy, Modest Mouse, and Killer Mike. And films based on him or his work have had names like Mickey Rourke, Faye Dunaway, Sean Penn, and James Franco attached. Bukowski's website claims he wrote over 5,300 poems and stories before his death for a readership that he described in an interview as, quote, the defeated, the demented, and the damned. 
And while I think that describes most critics perfectly, I know Bukowski was thinking of another part of society. The interviewer who mined that nugget, Adam Kirsch, writing for The New Yorker, went on to say, quote, Bukowski's poems are best appreciated not as individual verbal artifacts, but as ongoing installments in the tale of his true adventures, like a comic book or movie serial. They are strongly narrative, drawing from an endless supply of anecdotes that typically involve a bar, a skid row hotel, a horse race, a girlfriend, or any permutation thereof. And today's poem fits that perfectly, as we'll see. To be honest, when I started this journey, I think the last writer I ever expected to read would be this man. But it just goes to show that the journey through art, just like life, is full of unexpected twists and turns, new discoveries, and beauty, however gritty, in surprising places and voices. So I am incredibly excited to read this week's poem, which is entitled Eulogy to a Hell of a Dame by Charles Bukowski. Some dogs who sleep at night must dream of bones, and I remember your bones and flesh and best and that dark green dress and those high-heeled, bright black shoes. You always cursed when you drank, your hair coming down you wanted to explode out of what was holding you, rotten memories of a rotten past, and you finally got out by dying, leaving me with the rotten present. You've been dead 28 years, yet I remember you better than any of the rest. You were the only one who understood the futility of the arrangement of life. All the others were only displeased with trivial segments, carped nonsensically about nonsense. Jane, you were killed by knowing too much. Here's a drink to your bones that this dog still dreams about. Before I jump into my analysis of this poem, I just want to point something out. This podcast is called Poetry for Men. My hope is that through listening, men can understand themselves and each other better, as well as what it means to be a man. As men, Charles Bukowski and Galway Kennel probably couldn't be more different, not to mention Bukowski from Longfellow, Rilke, Michael Blumenthal, and Alden Nolan, or any of these men from each other. But from these poems, have you gotten the sense that any of these men are somehow less than men? Have you detected any effeminacy or weakness? Do their stories and accomplishments bear that out? I say no, absolutely not. Each of these men expresses himself with strength, poise, and grace in his own unique voice. None of them sound like the other, and all of them sound like men. So perhaps we can begin to put to rest this notion that men need to fit a mold, like the strong silent type, the captain of industry, the rock star playboy, etc. Holistic masculinity isn't expressed in the image of another man. It's expressed through you. And my want for you is to listen to these poems, to see and feel the truth of that, and to begin to live it out yourself. Although maybe not quite like Charles Bukowski, if only for your liver. On to the poem. Perhaps like me in hearing this poem, you're gripped with a set of images. I don't quite picture this eulogy being spoken in a graveyard, or even indoors in a smoky bar. To me, it feels like it's being spoken outside on a sidewalk or the blacktop, gravel and glass crunching underfoot and cigarette smoke wafting up through a streetlight with a stiff drink in my hand. The poem is gritty, raw, and urban. Even the title, with the word dame, evokes images of a noir detective thriller, full of mystery and the threat of violence, both of which we'll see. We're a long way from the Garden of Eden now. And this is where it might help for you to pull up the poem and look at it, 
you can find a link in the show notes. Bukowski arranges his text in a long, thin column, short lines of short words written in a rhythmic, ebbing and flowing style. Some details stand out. If the cadence of the first lines seem familiar, it's because they are. They're written in iambic pentameter, five pairs of stressed and unstressed syllables. Some dogs who sleep at night must dream of bones. If you remember your high school literature, one name should stand out as the most famous example of an author who favored iambic pentameter for his verse, William Shakespeare. You wouldn't expect to find him on a street corner, would you? But those opening lines draw us right into the poem, which Bukowski then follows up with a three-way rhyme. And I remember your bones and flesh and best in that dark green dress. With this and the iambic pentameter, it's sort of like a one-two punch. Then he rolls straight into alliteration, high-heeled, bright black shoes. And that's the finishing move. Like with a sport, it's all about the fundamentals. He continues, you always cursed when you drank. A woman in a dark green dress and high-heeled black shoes cursing when she's drinking? If you weren't subconsciously hooked by the mastery of his technique, there's not a red-blooded man on earth who'd stop reading now. And this next detail is easier to see than hear. In the line, your hair coming down you, he emits the comma between the words down and you. And in the visual reading, that creates an even greater sense of acceleration. Try to imagine the subtle change to the feeling of the words, and perhaps the entire poem, had that one comma been added at this turning point moment. Can you feel it? This is the precision of language that great poetry requires. And what makes modern poetry different from the classics is that that precision, beginning with E.E. Cummings in the early 20th century, came to be extended to the use or non-use of punctuation as well. That single missing mark keeps us heading straight for the cliff, getting ready to take flight. And then there it is. You wanted to explode out of what was holding you, rotten memories of a rotten past, and you finally got out by dying. From a cascade of hair into an explosion, this is the payoff to the first lines of the setup, and we discover why the poem is a eulogy. I'll leave you to look through the rest of the poem to find the stylistic details that make this piece so unique, because I'd like to transition to talking about Jane, who she is, and what she says about the poet. The Jane that Bukowski is eulogizing was an actual person, by the name of Jane Cooney Baker. Bukowski has inspired legions of loyal and perhaps even somewhat obsessive fans. In 2016, one of them set out to learn as much as he could about Jane because of all Bukowski's many wives and girlfriends, Jane is regarded to have been his one true love and greatest muse, appearing as a central character in many of his poems and works of fiction. So we're all clear on what the precise definition of a muse is. The term originates from ancient Greek mythology. The muses were goddesses who inspired the arts, literature, and also, you might be surprised to learn, the sciences. They were first documented in the poet Hesiod's Theogony. Hesiod was a contemporary of Homer in the 7th century BC and wrote that the muses were daughters of Zeus, king of the gods, and Nemesine, the titan goddess of memory. If you recall our discussion of Galway Kinnell's last gods, it seems the Greeks are following us around. Today, the concept of the muse has become personalized, transitioning from goddesses who inspire the arts broadly to goddesses, and muses are almost universally women, who inspire us personally. And Jane Cooney Baker was Charles Bukowski's muse, which explains why 28 years later, he's still mourning her and still having dreams about her bones 
and their unavoidable sexual innuendo. Who was Jane? That Bukowski fan I mentioned managed to find her granddaughter, Pam. It sounds like Jane and Charles weren't all that different. Years before she met Bukowski, her husband died in an alcohol-related car wreck for which she blamed herself. She then began drinking heavily, and according to Bukowski historians, she was living in cheap hotels until she met Bukowski in a bar. Tragically, she died in 1962 from a burst stomach ulcer due to alcoholism. Which brings us back to the poem. You can see and feel Bukowski's grief for Jane, the way he absolves her of her sins due to her rotten memories of a rotten past, and how he attributes her death to her understanding of the futility of the arrangement of life and, quote, knowing too much. Before I began researching this poem, I was thinking about what it means to die from knowing too much and viewing life through a nihilistic lens. The conclusion that I came to was that she committed suicide by drinking herself to death, which might not be too far from the truth. But Bukowski doesn't frame it that way. She didn't kill herself. Something killed her. And if I could share a bit of my personal philosophy here, many people debate about whether humans are good or evil by nature. The one piece of evidence I enter into the record about our essential goodness is that when people die, we remember the best of them, not the worst. Our eulogies for our loved ones celebrate their positive qualities, and we excuse, rationalize, or simply omit their failings. In fact, it's considered insulting to the dead, and in some ways dishonorable, to speak ill of them. Because even unto death, deep down, we believe in each other's essential goodness, which speaks to how we believe in our own. Bukowski does this as well, recasting what some might see as Jane's flaws into her greatest qualities, her cursing when she's drinking, her sloppiness, nihilism, and bottled rage. This was also the world that he inhabited the seedy underbelly of a seedy city, full of, as Time magazine might cruelly judge, low-life people. And yet somehow he made art of it and them. Dirty, broken, even tragic art, but still in its own way, beautiful. He took a woman with her rotten past and made her immortal. I can't think of a greater testament of a man's love for a woman than that. And as you listen to this poem a second time, I ask you to consider these paradoxes. A man who believes in the futility and meaninglessness of existence, creating meaning for so many. A man who didn't believe in anything, but who clearly believed in love. And a man with his own sort of death wish, who bestowed on the woman he loved a sort of eternal life. This is Eulogy for a Hell of a Dame by Charles Bukowski. Some dogs who sleep at night must dream of bones. And I remember your bones and flesh and best in that dark green dress and those high-heeled, bright black shoes. You always cursed when you drank. Your hair coming down, you wanted to explode out of what was holding you. Rotten memories of a rotten past. And you finally got out by dying, leaving me with the rotten present. You've been dead 28 years. Yet I remember you better than any of the rest. You were the only one who understood the futility of the arrangement of life. All the others were only displeased with trivial segments, carp nonsensically about nonsense. Jane, you were killed by knowing too much. Here's a drink to your bones that this dog still dreams about.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.